Well, it's good to be together today, and I want to welcome you. If you're a guest, my name's Mark, and this is a significant, um, it's a significant weekend in the life of our church. So after almost five years of North Campus doing life together for just a couple hours a week in one space called the DeForest High School, this weekend, North Campus is uh, meeting together for the first time in their new space. We used to call it the MAC. Now it's North Campus, so a shout out to those of you up north. Thanks for all of you that pitched in, worked hard to retrofit that beautiful space into now a space for two services on the weekends, and hope you guys are having a great day today. So we're continuing our series on the fight, and today we come to the topic of temptation, and I decided since none of us are ever tempted that we're done, so let's pray. So I, I've been thinking a lot about temptation, and I realized I don't think enough about it. I started thinking about the decades of my life and the different dominant temptations that I faced. Not like there weren't a whole bunch, but like the dominant ones. I, I haven't yet figured that out, but it was interesting to reflect on the early years, the teens, the 20s, the 30s, you know what I mean? And, and to just be thinking about some of those things. As I was thinking about temptation, maybe you can relate to some of the questions that were turning in my mind. So why are there some things that are like really big temptations for me and then others that are really big temptations for someone else, they, they aren't a big deal for me? Why is that? So like to put it in the vernacular of food, why does chocolate not do it? I mean, chocolate, it's all right. Give it to Lori. She loves it. Me? A donut? Oh, especially a fresh donut. Now we're talking. So what is it about one thing, not the other thing? I was thinking about why is it that the temptation's all around, but I'm so unaware of it? Why is that? And why do I say I'm so unaware of it? Because I realize that I'm a sinner. The Bible says, if you think you don't sin, you're a liar, 1 John 1.10. And I realize I must be very unaware of temptation and sin because confession is rarer in my life than common. Oh, I'd like to say it's because I'm a pastor and I've got it all together. But why is that, that I'm so unaware of it, that I hear myself infrequently crying out to God, help me here, help me here. What is it about temptation that I've reduced temptation to a category where temptation is only being tempted to do that which is wrong? So I've been thinking this week, well, what about the category where we're tempted to not do the right thing? So in Psalm 12, verse 5, God talks about how he protects the poor from those who would plunder them, those who would take advantage of them, those who would malign him. And I realize I can give excuses to God of why I don't need to do that because I've got to figure out why they're poor. And they just get their stuff together, they could work themselves out of it. You see what I'm saying? And then what is it about certain temptations where as much as I've confessed it and said to God and sometimes to other people, I don't ever want to do this again. How is it that I could have the Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead in me and find that power not as great as the power to repeat some things time and time again? It's probably just me. It's probably just me. So here's the sermon in a sentence, if you will. 
Because there's far more at stake than we think. We need to resist temptation. Here's a really important thing to remember. Temporary happiness isn't worth long-term gain. There is so much more at stake here. We've got to resist temptation. Remember that the temporary happiness that is promised isn't worth the long-term pain. So here's where we're going. What is temptation? Why do we fall into temptation? How do we resist temptation? And what do we do when we fall into temptation and fall into it again and again and again? All right, that's where we're going. So first, what is temptation? Webster says it's a strong desire or urge to have or do something, especially something that's bad, wrong, or unwise. That kind of resonates with us. There's one dominant word for the word temptation. In fact, if you search it in your Bible search program, you won't find an Old Testament reference. It's a New Testament word. It's the same word that's used in its verbal form and as a subject, right, a noun, temptation. And it's this word that could be translated to test or a trial or an enticement to sin. So there are times where the word is used when the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus. There is this temptation that's a a trial, like what 1 Peter 4 is talking about when he says to his followers that, hey, you're under severe struggles here as you're being persecuted for your faith. But he says to them, don't think they're strange, these things that are happening to you, these trials. And then there's this stuff of enticement. That's what we normally think of, this enticement to sin. So when we opened up this series, we talked about the fight is a good fight, and it's this fight of faith. And faith at its core is taking God at his word, believing what it says is true, following the directives and commands, and trusting what it promises. And so the enticement of temptation is to break faith with God in God and to not take him at his word, to not believe that it's a good word for us, to not believe that it's a word that I ought to follow, to not believe that it's a word that could come true. So let's talk about what it's not. First of all, temptation is not from God. The Bible's very clear about it. Trials are from God, but the desire to break ranks, the enticement to sin is not from God. How do we know that? James 1.13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So we can't say, God, why are you doing this? God's not doing this. You may be in a hard situation. There may be temptations in that. God is sovereign over these hard situations, but he is not the author of those urges and desires that make you not want to take God at his word and to break ranks with him. Second really important thing, that temptation isn't really important. It's not equivalent to sin. It is so easy to think, oh my word, I just had all these terrible things go into my mind and I've been thinking about doing it. I haven't acted on it, but I, 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 I must have done it. I must have done it. Now, it's really important to remember, temptation is not the same as sin. How do we know that? Hebrews 4.15. 
It tells us this, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Tempted, but he did not what? Sin. They're not the same. It's so important because we can be deceived and think, well, sure, it's the same thing. And so I've thought about doing so. I might as well do it because I've already nailed. I've already messed up. No. The other reason it's important because we can bring on this false guilt that the devil would love to bring into our hearts and lay on our hearts and have it be heavy there and have us wallow in that and kind of slink away from God. It's really important we understand the distinction. Third thing it's not. It's not unique, unusual, or bigger than us. So we can't say, well, you don't understand. Because let me tell you, this was an impossible situation. There was no way I could resist. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 flies right in the face and gives us a good correction here. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common, you could underline that, to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out, a way of escape so that you can endure it. All right, these are three really important things. This is a great verse. It's common, not unique. I'm not the only one who's ever faced this. You're not the only one who's ever gone through this. It's not more than I can bear. It feels like it right now. There is no way I can resist that. That's not what the Word of God says. No, it's not bigger than you. And with that temptation, he is going to flat. I see at the back of the room. There are exit signs over those two. He's going to flash the exit signs that say, this is the way out. This is the way out. So as I've been thinking about temptation this week, there's been this metaphor. So I, I want you to see it in your mind's eye. It's a room that you're in that has two doors. Two doors. One of them is the way out to that building. It's like the lobby of a building, if you will. One of them is the exit. It takes you out. Have you ever been to some of those old theaters and you take one of those side exits and the next thing you know as you crash through the bar there is, oh, it's the alley. Like, I'm out. I'm out of the building. That kind of a door. You're out of the building. The other door is into that building. I want you to think about that metaphor as we think about temptation. It's not unusual. It's not unique. It's not bigger than me. And it's not that we could say there's no escaping it. There's always a way out because God is faithful. So one of the things I want us to understand about temptation is this is not this abstract idea. This is all about relationships. It's all about personal things, our relationship with God, our relationships with others, with ourself. It's very personal. So temptation then is anything. It's a person, it's a place, it's a thing, it's a thought, it's a strong desire that threatens me to not take God at his word, to break ranks with God, to consider that that maybe God's not good, that maybe there's a better way to do it, not God's way, and I'm going to forge my own way. I'm going to create my own path. 
the nature of temptation. When we see that it is relational at its core between us and God, it helps us understand what's at stake. There's far more at stake. And that's been true since the very first temptation. And Adam and Eve, if they could replay it, would do it right every time. Because they so underestimated what was at stake when the snake slithered into the garden. So grab your Bible. Let's go to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we read the story of the very first temptation, reminding us that the stakes are high, reminding us of the importance of resisting temptation, reminding us that this fleeting pleasure of temporary happiness is no match for the long-term pain that comes on the backside. Verse 1, now the serpent... Okay, so we're in Genesis. If you're new to the Bible, very first book of the Bible... It's like page three or something like that in your Bible, chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. (laughs) You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. We don't have time to go into this. But men, this, this is why Adam's nailed and responsible for this sin. It's never called Eve's sin. It's Adam's sin. He was passive. He was passive when his wife was being tempted. He should have brought God's word to bear in the situation. But he sat idly by. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So why do we fall into temptation? Well, Genesis 3 lets us know because there is an enemy in this fallen world there is an enemy who seeks us out to destroy us to tear apart our faith to disconnect us from the relationship we are created for this enemy now we don't know who the serpent is in genesis 3 when you get to the end of the bible actually in revelation 20 it reminds us exactly who the serpent is none other than the devil the great accuser satan which is what Satan means. So here's what we know about Satan from the Bible. He was a fallen angel. That is, he was an angel created by God who protected God's holiness. He's one of the cherubim, right in the presence of God, who grew to become envious that God was getting all the glory and thought he ought to get some of it too. And so he leads a rebellion against God. He has other angels join him. These other demonic forces, demons, we call them, who go in rebellion with Lucifer, Satan, who is this beautiful 
angelic being who opposes God. He is called a murderer, a liar, the father of all lies, John 8, 44. A murderer from the beginning. The next story in chapter 4 is Cain rising up and killing his brother Abel. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of all lies. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, he's a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's the accuser of God's people, Revelation tells us. He's an attacker who attacks through suffering, through sickness. And, and so we see that in the life of Job. We see that when Jesus is casting out these demons on all these people who are being traumatized and demonized, like the demoniac in Mark chapter 5, who's running around the tombs trying to cut and kill himself, and he's just out of his mind. He's an attacker. And his MO is clear. He raises questions about God's character so that we doubt that he's good, so that we would disobey his clear command, not trust in his future promises, and reject his rule and authority in our life, choosing rather to, like him, be God of our own lives, rule our own lives. That's what he's about. But let's be clear. He's not equal to God. God has always existed. He is eternal. Satan was created. He knows the human condition well. He has studied it since the beginning of time. But he's not all-knowing. He can show up in places and move back and forth. But he is not like God everywhere present at the same time. He is not God. But he is cunning and he is powerful. And his mission is clear that we would join his ranks and oppose God and set the crown on our own heads. So notice strategy with Eve. He doesn't throw her the fruit. He doesn't take a bite out of the fruit and say, man, this is really good. He, he starts from the edges and he moves in, just like we would if we were casting out some bait. We're not going to throw it on top of the fish's head and scare him. We want to get it out a little ways and then bring it in. So how does he do it? He questions God's word. It's the first thing he says. Did God really say? Verse 1. He twists God's word. God didn't say you couldn't eat from any tree. No, actually, he flips it. God says, you can have everything in the garden save this one that I put a fence around, so to speak. In the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because you eat that, you're going to die. He says, oh, he wouldn't let you eat any of the trees. Oh, he's twisting God's word. Then he flat out contradicts God's word in verse 4. You're not going to die. One pastor put it this way, thinking of how the conversation could go. The reason he doesn't want you to eat it, Eve, is not because he loves you and you'll die. It's because if you eat it, you'll be like him, and he hates competition. He doesn't want anybody equal to him. He's jealous. It's an evil jealousy. It's a narrow jealousy. It's a restrictive jealousy. He contradicts it. He adds to God's word, mixing truth with lies. You'll know good from evil. You'll be like God. Well, they will know good from evil. Oh, will they viscerally know it as they run and hide and cover themselves up, covering their shame and their guilt. And so Eve's thinking, verse 6, she's thinking about what's been said. She's looking at the apple. And she's thinking to herself, I bet it tastes good because, man, it looks good. 
And I'm convinced that I need that. That he is holding back something good for me. And it would be better for me to have that fruit than to not have the fruit. I need that wisdom. I need that knowledge. I need it to gain what I don't have. And so she falls into the trap. There's a lot of free cheese around a mousetrap. A lot of free cheese. And she's grabbing for the free cheese, so to speak. And all of a sudden, she's got her hand on the wrong door. As she takes a bite, she hands it to Adam. Adam goes, well, man, she didn't die. Maybe he's right. So he takes it. And she's grabbed the wrong door. She's let go of the word. She's let go of that word that would get her to the exit of that lobby that's going to take her in to a world of hurt and pain and death and sorrow. And nothing's ever going to be the same in her life with God, with Adam, with the beautiful garden that she was placed in. She's got her hand on the wrong door. She's let go of the word. She's taken hold of door number two, the way in. And she knows it. She knows it. Satan succeeded. Adam and Eve no longer taking God at his good word. They doubted his character, his word. They broke ranks. They thought they had a better word. They thought they had a better way. They thought they knew better. They moved from a place of submission and following to a place of rule and leadership, and it all blows up. The stakes are high when we don't resist temptation. That temporary happiness is, is no balm for all the pain that comes after it. So we fall into temptation because there's a cunning, powerful enemy in this world but we also fall into temptation because we live in this fallen world and the world's values are not just out there but they're in here it's not just broken out in the world systems with the values and the thinking of the world systems i'm not talking about the physical world here the physical world is longing to be restored the bible tells us the world system is set up against god and that's a powerful force because we live in this world. And Jesus prays that as we do life in this world, that this world wouldn't come into us. But we have, we have the hearts of our first parents that have been marked by sin. They've been stained, if you will, by that sin. And it's not just something we've inherited. It's something we have taken on ourselves as well as we, like Adam and Eve, have not taken God at his word. We've broken ranks. And so there's two ideas here. The world outside and my own heart that is not just a good heart. It's a heart that is marked by these evil desires. So what does the word say? In 1 John 2, 16, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So there's the world out there. But it's not just the big bad world out there. It's also about my heart and the evil desires in my heart. First, James chapter one talks about this. This is right after the verse, let no one say when he's tempted of God. 
when he's tempted, that God tempted you. But each person is tempted, verse 14, when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. James 1, 14 and 15. So I want you to think about these evil desires. I want you to think about them like these voices. Sometimes you remember the cartoons and there's somebody on this shoulder and there's somebody on this shoulder. So interestingly enough, I don't know if you've ever listened to podcasts, This American Life. It's a popular show on NPR. They had an episode titled The Devil Inside Me. The show asked various people if they ever felt like they were under the spell of an inner voice that held them in bondage to unwanted thoughts. According to the show's host, quote, it was like people had been waiting all their lives for someone to ask him this question. Here were some of the responses from the interview. A man says, the voice is irresistible always. I'm in the thrall of that voice. A woman says, totally out of control. It's got this life of its own and I can't tame it anymore. Another woman says, I actually have a name for the voice. Sorry if your name is Stan. I call it Stan. Stan is the guy who tells me to have the extra glass of wine. Stan is the guy who tells me to smoke. A man says, I remember somehow realizing just how finely calibrated the voice was to every nuance, every part of my feelings, including the feeling that I didn't want to smoke cigarettes. And it's like, you might as well have another cigarette because this is it. A woman who just engaged hears her voice say, you better try your hardest to make sure he doesn't take the ring away because he's going to find out the truth about you and how much you suck. So you better distract him with a really thin body. And at the end of the episode, the host asks someone, do you feel like the voice is winning? A woman replies, right now, yeah. I think I'm in some serious trouble, to be honest. What, what, what is that episode about? It's about what the Bible talks about. That the tapes that are playing, the voices that we hear, are connected to our own hearts that have been marred by sin. And even hearts that have been made new by Christ are not yet completely new. And so these thoughts and desires still can come into a Christian's life. This is normal. And yet it's frightening. And so when you think about the strength of the enemy and how he knows us, when you think about the world and the forces and the cultural forces that just make us so immune to sin that we find ourselves rarely confessing. When we think about our own hearts and what the Bible says, the deceitfulness, how, how clever the heart is and how tricky it is to figure out our own hearts. Man, you go, how in the world, how in the world can we resist this trifecta force? So let's talk about that. How do we resist? So I'm gonna give you five keys here. You might wanna write these down. Five keys. The first four, I would say, are preventative. They're the stuff that we want to be about every day as a Christian. It's the, it's the life of faith. The first is to stay humble. Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
That's where you bring. That's where you start. This sense of spiritual poverty that I'm not strong, that I'm not good enough for God's favor and grace, that we understand who we are, both loved by God, but also someone who needed Christ to come and die for us because I'm a rebel. And so I stay humble. And I don't try and get strong for the fight. I stay weak. And in my weakness, I find strength, not in myself, but in the one who is strength when we know that we're weak. So Paul writes this about strength and weakness in this wild paradox of the gospel. My grace is sufficient for you, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. For my power is made perfect, complete, in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more glory, gladly, about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Stay humble. Don't try to be strong. Understand who we are. That's like, this is stuff. Humility. Don't ever say, I would never do that. You're having a conversation, somebody in your family, someone at work, someone in the neighborhood, and you hear this big whopping one, and you go, you heard this phrase? But by the grace of God. It's, it would be me. It could be. Don't ever think, I, I, I'll never do that. I could never do that. Yes, you could. Yes, you could. I've known too many good men in my life who have done things they were sure they would never, ever do. Stay humble. Stay connected to God's word. Live in God's word. Know God's word. Live God's word. We talk about the Bible's authority centering our lives on God's truth. We want to be in the word during the week, every day, so that the word would be in us. So when we come into that temptation zone, we enter that lobby, it's the word that helps us find the door. Because what does the psalmist say in Psalm 119, verse 105? Your, Your word is a lamp to my feet and it's a light to my path. I've hidden your word in my heart so that I won't sin against you. We gotta immerse ourselves in the word. Jesus tells his disciples to watch and pray so they don't enter temptation. What does it mean to watch? It means to know our weaknesses, to be on guard, to pray, asking God for help. And when you notice what it says about prayer in Ephesians 6.18, It's really interesting what it says. And this is in the very passage where Paul's going through the the armor and and he gets to the end of this warrior that's dressed up in the helmet of salvation and and the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth. He's got the sword of spirit, which is the word of God. He's got his feet fitted with these gospel boots. And then the image of this warrior as he prepares for for battle as he drops on his knees. That's the position. And so he's talking about prayer right after he's talked about all the spiritual armor. And he says this, 618, and pray in the Spirit. The Spirit's always working with the Word, right? Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. And so watch and pray means that's something we do together. Get in community. Pray. Help each other out. Hold each other up. There's a fourth thing. Stay active in God's service. Stay active in God's service. So let me go through because we're going fast. Be humble. Stay connected to God's word. Watch and pray. Stay active in God's service. So there's this great story. If you're new to the Bible, it's about King David 
This great king is described as a man after God's own heart. He's unbelievably a good man. Most of the Psalms are written by David. The, the, the kingdom is never greater than under David. But, but he falls into this awful sin of adultery that leads to murdering Bathsheba's husband. And the story starts in verse 1 with these words. In the spring, when kings went off to battle, David sent Joab. And you go, so? It's like, there's all these details. This is like a really important detail. What's the, de what's the detail? David was supposed to be in battle. Why do we know that? Because it's spring. Why do we know kings are supposed? Because that's what kings did. He had enemies that he was to be chasing, and he was disengaged from God's service. And it was at that point that he was vulnerable. Be active in God's service. Those are preventative. Humility, the word, watching, prayer, serving actively our God and his people and his purposes. And then we get to this one thing that is the critical move when you get in that room. And imagine the lobby now is not full of just beautiful glass. Imagine that there are no lights. Imagine that it's dark. And all you know is there's two doors. And most of the time in temptation, that's what it feels like. I don't know. Or I know, but oh, I'm so, I'm thinking maybe is what we need to do is take that sword, which is the sword of the Spirit, is the Word of God, and let that Word be the light that gets me to the door, that gets me out. And not only does it get me out, not only does it protect me, from this temptation. We know from Matthew 4 and Luke 4 when Jesus is under temptation and just like Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus in the wilderness tempted three times, but he does not give in. And every time he's tempted, he retorts quoting parts of Deuteronomy of all the Old Testament books. Like we get to Deuteronomy going, oh man, I gotta get through this one quick. He quotes from Deuteronomy. Not only does that word conquer the enemy and cut through the lies and the deception, not only does it get us out the door, but it does even one better. Because we need to understand this. There is nothing original about sin. There's nothing original about evil. It's always a twisting. And what we do with the word is we take it and run out the door is we recover not just what, what, what we're not supposed to do, but we recover what we're supposed to do and we just go... In, in this kind of judo move of faith. So you go, I don't know what you're talking about. All right, so let me illustrate. There's a metaphor in the New Testament. Paul uses it in Ephesians, in Colossians. And it's this idea of clothing, putting on, putting off. He talks about putting off the old self with these evil desires and putting on the new self with these new desires for God, to live in faith with God, to believe that he's good and do his good work in this world. And he says, the way that you put something off is actually by putting on the right thing. And he uses the example of falsehood. So here it is in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, 22 through 25, he's talking about putting off the old, putting on the new. Then he says, here's an example. Therefore, verse 25, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. How do you put off lying? How do you put off falsehood? It's really easy. You always tell the truth. Once you tell the truth, there's no room for lies. So here's a cool thing. 
that, that, that there is this great temptation and danger in this temptation zone to reject God, not keep him at his word, and, and move in a, in a direction that is not good for us. And it's not good for my relationship with God. But at the same time, it is this huge opportunity to draw nearer to God and to live more for God. So we don't just use the word to rescue us out of the building. We, we actually do one better. It gets us out of the building and it gets us moving towards what God wants us to do. And some of us have been fighting the same temptation and our whole focus has been on, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this. Well, there's something more in the Bible to this. Because it's not just what we shouldn't do, it's what we should do. When we start focusing on what we should do and when we do that, we can't do that. Because you can't lie when you're telling what? Truth. You see how it works? So let me, you just go through these. We don't have time to get into them all but you pick one of these goes, that's, that's me. So, tempted to covet. There's things that other people have and you go, man, I need those, I want those, I really wish those were mine, those should be mine. Well, easily what we could say is we could memorize like Exodus 20, thou shalt not covet, right? Your neighbor's wife, the servants, the cattle, all the possessions he has, you shouldn't do it, 10th commandment. And then there's this other way where we keep moving out to what we should do and that is we should be content and rejoice in all that we have. Coveting is all about what I don't have. That, that's what Satan did. You don't have this tree. He, he, he didn't remind him that, oh, you do have everything else, by the way. No, I didn't go there. So then I, I go to like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And I start thinking about being adopted out of his love and he's chosen me, and he's redeemed me, and he's freed me, and he's forgiven me, and all those things that are mine. So I don't just use the word to get out. I don't just use the word to, to break through the lie. I use the word to take me to that new behavior, that new piece of clothing that when I have it on, it lessens the potential for me to fall into temptation, coveting. Pride, well, we know Proverbs 16, or maybe you don't, it says this, pride goes before the fall, We've seen it. We maybe experienced it. We don't like to say this, but when it happens to people around us, that you know, we go, well, that's good. Good for them. But here's another thing. The, the Bible says that we're not to live in pride, but we're to live in humility. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. God, help me to do that. Help me to see myself for who I am. First Peter 5, 6. You tempted to lust? Jesus makes great cases. You don't lust. It's just like you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed what? Adultery. So we can, we can quote that scripture or we can go to focusing on that which is even more beautiful than what we are tempted to take in. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. He attempted to take revenge. The word of God in Romans 12 tells us to bless those who persecute you. You start praying for those people. You attempted to live in fear. You start living in, in the reality of God's love for you and that love chases out all those fears. And so we want to know God's word for the things that we're facing. And in that temptation zone, what we've done in preparation is going to be huge. It's going to be huge. We're not going to be un unaware that it could happen to us because we're living in humility. We're going to be watching and praying 
We're, we're going to know more of God's word, living in community. So we, we've got the one thing that we need, God's word for that moment to get out, to get to the right door, and to live rightly, not just to not live wrongly. So that's great. I get it. But here's the deal. I've been a Christ follower for a long time, and I keep screwing up. And it's the same thing, and I can't get out of the cycle. And that's, that's true for all of us. There's, there, we may not know it, but it's true for all of us. You know, all sin is equal. The consequences aren't. So we may not be dealing with the consequences like other people. So, so what, do, what do I say to myself and to you? Well, there's a, there's a dominant verb that is used to te- when it's talking about temptation, and it's the little word flee. Get out of there. It's what Joseph did, unlike what David did. Flee. It talks about fleeing sexual immorality. It talks about fleeing idolatry. It talks about fleeing um, greed and materialism. Run. And, and, and this is the image. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. The one who understands because he's been tempted in every way that you and I have been. But he didn't give in. And so you can run to him for mercy and grace and forgiveness and claim that if I confess my sin and tell him what he already knows, he will forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Run to Jesus, the truth of his word, the power of his spirit, the, the, the support of his people. Run to Jesus in all the resources that he gives to his people. Remembering this, 2 Peter 2.9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, there's so much going on here. And um, settle your word in our hearts. Remind us again of our need for you, Lord Jesus, and that there's nothing we've ever done that is bigger than what you've done for us on the cross. Lord Jesus, you're enough. May we believe that. I pray that there be someone who's been fighting these desires and has no hope. The truth is they've never given their life over to you. I pray that they would trust you that what you did on the cross was for them, that they'd be freed, Lord, from the guilt of their sin, even from the power of sin in their life right now. And one day, we pray with great faith that we'd be freed from the presence of sin. We cannot wait. But until that day, we pray that we would know what's at stake, that you would give us strength to resist and eyes wide open to not get caught in with that temporary temporary happy thing and learn the lessons of the word and of our own lives and live for you and find that that is more than enough. In Christ's name we pray, amen.